Welcome back to the More Love Podcast with Helen Reynolds. Today we have the pleasure of talking with Keith Livingston about his recovery from a so-called incurable brain tumour. Welcome Keith and thank you for sharing your story with us. Hi Helen, thanks for inviting me. (laughs) Well, it's a great story and I can't wait to dive in. But first, let me uh, uh, help the listeners join in with you by sharing a little briefly your story and then a couple of paragraphs from your book. So in July 2007, you, Keith, collapsed suddenly while writing a report in his newly built, heavily financed chiropractic office in Bendigo, Victoria, Australia, for those international listeners. He'd had a grand mal seizure and his life changed in a moment. Almost in an instant, you went from apparently healthy, successful chiropractor in Bendigo to recovering from neurosurgery in a hospital in Melbourne. And I'd really like to share a couple of paragraphs from your book. So you write, When I rang my great childhood friend Gavin on the eve of my first surgery, I apparently rang him to say goodbye. As there was no ironclad guarantee I'd come out of surgery neurologically intact or even alive. The poor guy said it was like being hit with a mallet. The subtleties of beating around the bush are not my strong suit. When I recovered extremely well following biopsy surgery, I apparently rang Gavin to announce I now had two goals that I was going to live for. First, to see my fifth child born and, God willing, to see my child start school. And a little further on in the book. The neurosurgery registrar at St Vincent's Public Hospital in Melbourne was a tall, pleasant younger man named Paul. In the post-surgical rounds, he assessed me and said, Well, Keith, we weren't able to remove the tumour, but we did get a biopsy. There's some good news and some bad news. Which would you want to hear first? I immediately said, shoot with the bad news first. He then replied, it's terminal and inoperable, but it's treatable. He was studying my reaction to this news closely. However, I decided to make light of it by saying, that's okay, we're all terminal, aren't we? He considered my statement seriously, then agreed with me that in fact, we are all terminal. Initially, I was diagnosed with a fairly lethal type of brain tumour with a grim prognosis. This was called mixed anaplastic oligoastrocytoma, grade 3, a tumour that sent out a root system like a weed would all through my brain. This condition had a median survival time of 18 months. And then the last paragraph. After chemotherapy and radiation therapy, the tumour shrank significantly and remained stable for quite some time. A year later, the tumour took off again, changing rapidly to the most lethal of all brain tumours, a grade 4 glioblastoma multiform. This is unhappily coined the brain cancer death sentence. Apparently in North America each year there are 12,000 diagnoses and 12,000 deaths from this malicious entity annually. 
So those three paragraphs from your book uh, really sort of bring us up to speed with the immensity of what you've been through and the depth of value that we um, are looking forward to in your story. And thank you again, Keith, for being here with me and our listeners. And um, I'd like to dive in really deep with the first question and ask you, how did you feel when you decided that you decided, I mean, you really had to make a choice that you would see your fifth child be born and see her start school? Yep. You've hit it on the head, the nail on the head there, Helen. Everything's about decisions. And uh, long before all this happened to me, almost pre-sessionally, uh, I've always been interested in people's survival and how they got through things. And it's just part of my psyche. So I've read a great deal over the years from people who have survived terrible things, way, way worse than what I've gone through, way worse. So they have commonalities in their, um, in their stories in that they make, at some stage, a decision. And uh, we know from the philosopher Gotha that decisions have power in them. And so if you want to switch on your survival, uh, you've got to have something to pin your survival on. And one of my favorite um, philosopher scientists is um, Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. And I write about him in the book. And he, he's one of my all-time great uh, mentors. So these guys speak speak to you through time and through experience and through their words. And uh, he was a remarkable man who was known as the founder of a branch of psychology called um, Logotherapy. And Viktor Frankl, uh, was the survivor of three separate prisoner of war camps uh, during World War Two for the uh, offence of being a highly qualified academic and a neurologist and a psychologist. Uh, that was a terrible thing to be as a Jew in uh, post-war Germany. So for that, he was imprisoned in three separate prisoner of war camps. But how he survived was remarkable. He developed a technique all of his own making in the prisoner of war camps, which he later called forward focusing. So what happened was he would be getting his routine beating with canes from SS guards, and he removed himself from that situation to a place far in his imagined future where he was talking to a big lecture theatre packed full of psychology students in this future place. So he removed himself from the beating he was having in real time, projected himself into his future. And from there, he looked back and, and was able to describe coherently what was actually happening to him in his imagined past from his future start. Do you get what I'm saying? So, yes, yes. So this remarkable man uh, did survive the war, survived the three separate incarcerations, came out intact went on to become the founder of Logotherapy, lived to be 93, and uh, wrote Man's Search for Meaning, which, which was an absolute classic. You can read it in the night. So he was one of my main mentors in all of this. So right from the start, I thought, well, that can't happen. I've got too much to do. I'm a firm believer that if you've got something to do, and this is what Victor Frankl was big on, he used to cite, um, well, another... Uh, German philosopher type who who said something along the lines of something to do, someone to love and something to live for, you can survive anything. So I decided that I've got something to live for because I've got five children coming up 
And there's no way known, no way known whatsoever that I wasn't going to see my new baby born and uh, wet her head and name her or him, whoever it was going to be. We never knew of any of our kids what they were going to become or be. So um, I just decided to mark a really big line in the sand that there's no way known I was going until I saw that baby. So I tied that to really quite deep emotions, which run very deep in all of us. So I pinned my survival and seeing that baby, and that became pivotal in my survival because I wasn't just surviving, surviving for me, I was surviving for my family and for all the generations after me. So uh, when you realize that you're part of an ongoing story that's going to unfold down through the generations, that what you do personally in, in, in this life affects all of those generations, it's a tremendous responsibility, and you have no choice but to live up to it. And that's my feeling. And uh, so I just decided that there's no way no, known that I was going to go anywhere, despite what all these specialists were telling me, you know. And uh, so I got really, as I said the other day to you when we were having a chat, I got my dander up and I got quite annoyed. And I had all these people, you know, voluntarily telling me how short my life was going to be and I might as well pack up and give up. But at the end of the day, I was still alive. I still had stuff to do. I wasn't dead. So I thought, well, I'll just keep on turning up every day and stay as healthy as I can. And uh, I set myself some goals. And uh, another guy who I'm very inspired by was a, a black preacher called Howard Furman, who was uh, very big on the civil rights movement in the early 1900s. But he, he, he was a marvellous person who wrote about enthusiasm and what he said about enthusiasm was um, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it because what the world needs is people who have come alive. So I thought, well, what makes me enthusiastic? What makes me come alive? I'll go and do that. And what I was really enthusiastic about and always have been since I was a kid was athletics and particularly a branch of athletics and distance running um, based on what we called in New Zealand the Lydiard Principles. And, and uh, so I decided I would write the bespoke book describing all those principles for the athletics world. And that was my goal and life purpose uh, for several months while I was uh, preoccupied with all these you know, endless rounds of specialist visits and doom and gloom stuff. And uh, I, I just made it my purpose to write the best possible account of the Lydiard system that I was capable of doing just because I was fascinated by it and I'd experienced elite levels of running success myself by doing this uh, marathon endurance training. So I decided to write a book about it. And uh, that in itself somehow all came to be. Uh, it, it achieved publication without me looking for an author or, or, or publisher. Um, and uh, so that became something for me to focus on. And it was something I was infused about and something I loved. And that had a life of its own and got published. And so I'm very much involved in all those things. And uh, that, to me, is one of the keys to, to why I'm still around and doing things because I've got plenty to do and I feel my time isn't up yet at all. I am amazed sometimes by what I've got through uh, because it's actually not anything to do with me. I'm, I just turn up every day. But I also feel very safe and secure and protected and looked after by a force far, far bigger than me, uh, which I've always believed in. Um, but it's no mystery to me 
this force. It's just all around me all the time, and I just feel totally that I'm going to survive a lot, lot longer than all these specialists, yeah, decided amongst themselves that I could or couldn't survive to. So at the end of the day, I decided it was up to me, and that brings us into an area of um, self-care, which I call stewardship. So you can pray all you like to a divinity that you might or might not believe in. Uh, you can do all those things, uh, but at the end of the day, unless you're prepared to take real-world steps to look after your health, very practical things, and that includes excluding all negative thoughts, uh, you're not going to get anywhere. So what I did is, um, based on my reading and all my um, experience over the years, a lot of thinking, I decided to formulate my own survival plan. And so I got right into nutrition, how to feed my cells from the molecular level up and got into ketogenic eating, weekly chiropractic care because I've always been a chiropractor for years. And that really helped me stimulate my brain function and nervous system. And then I also decided I would just deliberately block out anything that would sabotage my psychology. So I made a list of reasons why I should die. I could only find one. That was that there was a database somewhere. That was the only reason I found to uh, convince me it was time to die. Uh, but I had about 20 reasons to live. So I thought, well, 20 to 1, uh, you know. And I also thought if I've got the backing of the biggest, most powerful force in the universe behind me, uh, there's no way a few facts and figures and opinions of um, nerdish types, you know, specialists, uh, are going to take me off my course. So I, I just decided just to pursue things my own way, take no notice whatsoever of any um, prognostications or prognoses and all that. Because when I go, is not up to them, not even up to me, but it's, when it's time to go, it's time to go. And I'm very fortunate to have had a lovely father who went right through World War Two. His own father was a sergeant major in World War One who lost a leg. And these guys, I mean, the things they saw and experienced. But I asked my dad years ago when I was a kid about whether he was ever scared of dying, and he said, no. Nah. He said, when your number's up, your number's up. So because he's my dad, I believed everything he said, and uh, obviously my number's not up yet. So I've got a very, very simple outlook on life. I love your list of um, 20 reasons, and I enjoyed reading them in your book. But I'd really love if you could explain how you know that you have the support of a force greater than you. How do, how do you know how do you feel it? Could, is there any words you can put around that? I know it's really difficult. Well, actually, I don't think it's difficult. You know, um, having been a distance runner for years and, and enjoyed exercise so much, particularly endurance-type exercises, uh, often you on your own in nature for hours on end and communing with nature and uh, uh how do I know? Well, I just feel it all around me, and it, I just marvel at the you know, how minerals and uh, vitamins and inert substances can all combine in a living organism that's me um, on these long runs. And I just feel at one with everything around me when I'm when I'm doing that all the time and tireless and just just enjoying every breath and 
being out there in all weathers, just being part of nature and so just part of everything. And um, I don't have words really to describe it, but uh, ever since I was a tiny little baby, my mother used to um, pray for me every night. We used to have little rituals and I never had a, a moment in my life where I didn't believe in a divinity because um, it was just part of my family upbringing. I just had a very happy childhood with a mother and a father who were lovely people and uh, who you know, um, gave me a, a lovely foundation to my life, which I'll be eternally grateful for. That's part of my knowing. And that brings me to another thought that is particularly important in survival. And you said it before, words. Words are incredibly powerful. So, I mean, they say, they say or someone says that uh, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That is probably the most fallacious and incorrect statement you can possibly have. Words can hurt you, particularly the words you buy into and the words you speak to yourself. So right from the start, I decided to block out anything negative that anyone said to me and just not acknowledge it in my heart or, or let it get past the first stage of acceptance. So I saw that anything said to me that could be remotely negative was like a uh, wedge. You know how you can break apart a big um, block of granite with a simple wedge in the right spot? And that's where a great writer called C.S. Lewis came in because he wrote... Well, he was famous for the Chronicles of Narnia, but he, he wrote in one of his books about the um, uh, the thin edge of the wedge. And the thin edge of the wedge is what you've got to be really on guard for when you're in a situation like I was. I was plunged into just maelstrom of turmoil and horrible, swirling, dark thoughts for a while. But then quickly I realized, hey, this is no good. What can I grasp? that I can hold on to in my heart and and do that's practical every day to, to get me to where I want to go. And what I decided on was to completely block out any little wedges getting into my psyche. And I made a list of them in the book. Um, people offering you almost patronising advice. You know, these are little thin edges of the wedge that can come at you from all angles. If, and, and it's not that people mean to pull the rug out from under you, but they can't help it because they're, they're just spokespeople for society's norms and society's opinions and uh, conventional thought. So I had to um, block out just about anything anyone was saying to me for a while there, even if it's really helpful advice because, for instance, some very well-meaning people said to me, oh, you should go and see this person. He's brilliant. Or she's brilliant and she can help you with this and he can help you with that. But if I was actually going to go and see all these people, that would be a whole lot of time, uh, a whole lot of um, angst, you know, and it's all energy, it's all nervous energy, and I needed to hoard that energy for myself and um, absolutely look after that life force so that uh, I was going to get through this thing. And I'm very focused on survival the best way I can. So, like I say, words are all important. So I'll never say anything bad about this condition. If anything, I just make light of it like I did the first time. People say, oh, gee, that's terrible. Or how's your health? These are sort of little little wedges that come at you. How's your health, Keith? Or are you well? Uh, or things like that. And then people come along and uh, 
you know, you might have a situation like I did with one poor old guy who was obviously grieving over his son who died from the same condition I had. Uh, he said, how's your health? I said, oh, it's great. Which is always is a sort of default answer. Everything's great. And then he said, oh. And I said, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get through this, which I was. Um, and then he said, oh, yes, my son thought that too before he passed on. So it was like a damp sponge, uh, just sort of uh, expunging what I just said. I, I'd made a statement of intent that I was going to get through this, and then this guy, probably out of grief uh, or angst or something, he spoke disbelief into my psyche, which I couldn't listen to. So I excused myself politely, uh, understanding his intent and where he came from, because I mean, how, how do you rationalise losing your son who's far younger than you? Um, anyway, that's how I've dealt with things, and uh, and words are all powerful. So I always um, use the most powerful words I can find anywhere, and they come from ancient scripture, because uh, I'm a fan of ancient history and I'm a fan of scripture. Some of the best words are from the Old Testament, and those words themselves are thousands of years older than, than the, the scriptures that they're in. For instance, um, you get the Psalms and the Proverbs in the Old Testament, and they are 1000 BC, supposedly written by David and his son Solomon. They are actually also found in the writings of the, the old prophets in the Levant 2,000 years earlier again. So words like um, nothing new under the sun, which, is, which are in Ecclesiastes, they come from uh, writings that are 2,000 years earlier again. So we're dealing with 5,000-year-old thought that's come from before the printed or, or largely the written word, which are ancient wisdom. And if they've been around that long and survived that long, there must be an element of uh, truth to them. So I, I'll often, it, well, every day I go for a walk, and I'll walk around a, 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 a little circuit near my home here, which I've sort of um, constructed around the 23rd Psalm, which is... Um, if you're not a church goer or Christian, it's still famous to many non-Christians, and that's uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I think most people in Western countries would know, maybe they know the words of that, even if they don't repeat them or, or learn them off by heart, they'd be familiar with them. But the rest of that um, 23rd Psalm, uh, I, I repeat that on this walk, and it has elements of the psalm in it. So I I walk in one part past a, a large paddock, which is, depending on the time of the year, it's green, you know, green pasture, um, got sheep in it, so they become the, you know, the the sheep in the pasture, and uh, I uh, I'm actually walking through the psalm on my little circuit, so I just reinforce and reinforce and reinforce all those positive, powerful, ancient scriptures into my brain every day and that's like a um, uh, repellent to any negative stuff you know so uh, you can't you can't beat repeating ancient scripture because it has such an element of what I call truth uh, to it and it's so ancient and so um, durable that I find it personally very powerful for my well-being and uh, I just speak good words into myself, healing words all the time. And that's what a lot of scripture is. It's just powerful healing words and thoughts. Uh, words do have power. 
Yeah, they certainly have been powerful for you. And for those yep. listeners who haven't read your book, you know, you were so adamant and so focused on on healing and on, on the power of words and blocking out uh, any prognoses that you even had a doctor write about your um, descent almost. Descent's not quite the right word. But oh, yes. Your diff- I, I was... I was naughty. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was not towing the party line. It's almost hilarious. Um, because I chose to not go along with the prognosis, and this, he was trying to convince me, with my wife there as well, that I had to take it seriously. You know, and here we were sitting down. Now, I'm a fully qualified and trained chiropractor. I've, I've had just as much training in the medical sciences, anatomy, physiology, biology as as any. GP going around, uh, I'd say, um, but I don't buy into the full package because I'm a chiropractor and we're natural health. Uh, I have a certain amount of, um, let's say, scepticism about unnatural or pharmacologically derived substances curing conditions which your body created by itself. So anyway, this poor lady, um, very well-meaning, very highly qualified lady, She's in charge of the uh, radio, uh, oncology radiation department. So she's an absolute expert in how to apply radiation to tumours. And she had seen the MRIs, and they were woeful, apparently. Um, and then she was in the room there, and she's saying, you do realise, Mr Livingston, that you've got a terminal condition, and it's very aggressive, and, uh, and it could finish you off. Words to that effect, you know. I said, yeah, I realise that's what you believe, but I don't believe it. I don't choose to believe it. I don't want to believe it, and it's not going to happen. And she she looked at me like I was absolutely crazy. And looking at it objectively, here I was, a guy who, uh, you know, just had a terminal diagnosis. Um, you know, really, um, the survival rates for this, uh, well, I'm beyond, way beyond uh, the norm, apparently. Yes, let's just put it into perspective. 2007 was 13 years ago. Yep. Yeah, so if you reach 10 years with this particular condition, that's the, called the survival rate. You, you, your chances of surviving it now that you've gone that far are the same as any other person without that condition of your age in the, in the population. So I've reached population survival rate long since. And so going sheerly by survival statistics, then I've got every shot at living a long time, same as anyone else, which is what I, I'm aiming to do. And it all comes down as well to um, belief. So I love words. You know where belief comes from? It comes from the Middle English, uh, ancient English. And as far as I understand, it's be in love with. So I'm not in love with the idea of taking it or going belly up early. But I am in love with the idea of surviving a long time and living to a grumpy old age or an old age where it can be a nuisance. That I'd love to be able to live a long time. That's what I want. And I'm going to do my darndest to get there every which way I can. So um, that's what I'm in love with is the idea of a long, healthy life and uh, being of use and service till I'm no longer viable. So die of old age, worn out. That's fantastic. So belief means being in love with, uh, you know, a certain statement or set of a group of, you know, a sentence, a group of words. Be in love with, yeah. So w- once you understand the words behind the words, uh, then it, 
you're into another dimension of understanding where how powerful words are or could be and what the words you say to yourself and what you say to yourself uh, can dictate all outcomes. So another great quote uh, I came across was with the um, uh, the hard-nosed General Patton. Uh, I mean, <laughs> he, must, he must have been really bad because he was known to have actually slapped a soldier uh, across the face of his gloves um, for being a coward. And the guy was shell-shocked and had been in battle, you know. And, and so he he was a... But, you know, he, he was pretty bad. And, uh, but one thing he did say, which I, I thought was useful, was, I'm only beaten when I admit it. So if you never admit anything... You know, and so what I've found I had to do with all these specialists and people who knew far more than me about this condition than I did um, was that I never admit that what they were saying was possibly true and uh, that all they were doing to me was just speaking words at me and I'll just have a process where I just bounce them off me like a, like a, you know, Maxwell Smart had that um, cone of silence that you put down. Yes. Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah, so I I have this cone of silence I just bring down over myself and all those words just bounce away. And I just don't worry about anything. And uh, that's another key too, like worry. We're told in the scriptures in Matthew, we're not supposed to worry. Now that instruction, and the New Testament is just instructions really, it's not commandments like the Old Testament. If the master of life or the Lord of life itself, as I like to call him, which is from C.S. Lewis, uh, the Lord of Life itself has said, "Don't worry." Well, I won't worry. That's an instruction. It's, it's a, you know, it's a, if you're not supposed to worry, why would you worry? You know, we're told not to worry. We've got nothing to worry about, and um, we all go in the same direction at the end of the day. So we're all going to die at some stage. But um, we're not supposed to worry, and we're supposed to enjoy our lives. And that's what I'll do. And uh, I'm. I'm just following a mandate from the Lord of Life itself. I think it's really fabulous and it leads right into another paragraph that I really wanted to share from your book. It's about the word sin. So reading reading from your book. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and, and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So here you've quoted Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, and then you've gone on to write, in your words, My understanding of the word sin is that it is derived from an Arabic term used in archery for missing the target. So my broader understanding of this term is a bit different to most in that sin can be as simple a concept as missing the target or life purpose set before us. There are, of course, many specific ways that one can be pulled off target or off purpose. Some can be inspired by evil, but many more by laziness or lack of purpose. Yep. I really, really liked that paragraph and I, um, I certainly can identify myself personally with a laziness in terms of um, a focus. You know, I'm not a lazy person, but... My focus can be lazy and it can let in um, some sinful aspects, you know, in terms of thoughts and words and so on. So I really yeah, loved so, your clarification. Yeah. So where that came from was in Arabic culture with the archers, they'd yell out, sin, 
seen if they'd missed the target when they're doing archery practice. If an arrow didn't get in, the guy who's watching the target would just hear out seen, like miss, 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 you know. So if you have something you're aiming for, you've got to exclude everything else except that. It's called being in the zone. Different names for the same concept, but being in the zone means you, you really, your whole focus is looking where you want to go, which ties in totally with what Viktor Frankl said in his book about um, forward focusing. You focus on the future you want, totally focus on that. What I've done is I've looked back at my life in this book, and that was just a, a pragmatic way of um, focusing forwards to what I want. And uh, I'm getting there very slowly, but I'm getting there. And uh, forward focus, transporting yourself in your, into your desired, imagined future is a great way to escape your current woes. It's daydreaming, I know, but um, it's uh, pretty much a a very strong psychology tool, which is used in logo therapy. Which um, leads me to another paragraph from your book. This is how you wrote about it. For years, I envisaged a future as a writer and a speaker, meeting fascinating people and researching interesting topics around the world. I regard this little issue as a blessing in that regard. I keep getting told by knowledgeable people that my survival is amazing or that I am amazing. However, as I am certainly being looked after, I don't personally think it's me who is amazing. I have very little to do with it. It's a bit like being carried on an elevator to an exciting destination. All I've got to do is believe the dream and keep on doing what I'm doing. Yep. Uh, my particular inspiration for that was my dear old mum who passed away a few years ago. She was actually quite excited about the impending prospect of departing the mortal coil. I was lucky enough to see her, because um, she lives in New Zealand, about two weeks before she passed on. She was palpably excited by the prospect of crossing over. Uh, very excited because it's a new form of life for her. She's very old um, and her body was failing her and uh, she was sharp as a tag mentally, but, you know, she was um, getting all those problems of the very elderly and it's not pleasant for her. So she was very excited. It was a palpable frisson, let's say, of excitement just talking to her and she knew she was on the way out. One of the things she said to my brother, who'd come over from the UK where he was living, to see mum in New Zealand um, before she passed on and to help her out, uh, yeah, she, she moved out of the home in, into an old folks' home. Uh, uh, she told him one night, very late, to go home and get some sleep. But as he left the room, she said, oh, everyone's here now, you know, like, Everyone's here. You know, like she's just wrapped. Everyone was around her. So, who was she seeing, or who was she talking to, or what was the brain doing? Um, but she was happy, really happy. And um, so, obviously, at that stage of life, she's a hundred percent alive, experiencing something. I don't know what she's experiencing. Was she imagining it? But whatever it was, it was very real to her. And so, I take a lot of comfort out of that. Um, she is quite possibly talking to people she hadn't seen for years. Um, who knows? But um, there's no—I don't—I don't, I don't um, think about 
passing on just yet because I've got far too much to do in the here and now. But, um, you know, everyone else can do it. So why not <laughs> me? <laughs> and what's there to be afraid of? Like, And a few times I've actually collapsed and, and thought I was on the way out uh, with massive seizures. But then I, I sort of come to and um, somehow I'm still here. And, um, and my body just decides for me that it's just going to keep on kicking on. So um, very definitely uh, it's telling me things, even when my own belief systems are being challenged quite a bit. And that's happened a few times. Um, but I don't think we've got the time to go into to that. It's all in the book. But, um, yeah, I've been very definitely been very challenged on a few occasions about my quest. But, um, as I say, if the body wants to live to the core of its being, it'll keep on living. And, and you get good. You get very good at doing what you always do. It's like a training effect. And so if you've made the choice, uh, the absolute choice to stay alive despite everything, that's a pretty hardcore choice. Um, apparently, a lot of people get talked out of that choice. And I know where that comes from. It comes from um, people speaking their medical wisdom into their life, you know. And, and uh, if, if you're a person who's always been a good citizen, let's say, and believe what people in authority say is absolutely true, then you probably won't survive something like this. But if you're a bit of a rat bag or you're, uh, you don't necessarily believe everything you're told, or a little bit cynical or skeptical, uh, you've probably got a better chance than anyone else of, of um, getting through it. And not for a moment do I believe that um, just because thousands of people die from this doesn't mean I have to. So my quest is to um, be the one that got away. <laughs> and I'd really encourage people, um, if they've enjoyed listening to you talk about what happened, I mean, there's so much that you haven't had a chance to cover in this podcast and uh, so I highly recommend your book and we actually haven't shared its title. So the book title is Staring Down the Beast, How I Enjoyed Myself Well from a Brain Tumor Death Sentence. Yeah, that's what, that's what it's called, um, the Brain Tumor Death Sentence. But it's, it's just someone's name for something. And I call it my little issue, which is another way of um, deactivating the power of yes. words. So I just call it my little issue. And, um, and if people ever ask me, how I was going, even even when I was probably grey-faced and pasty-looking early in the piece and looking pretty darn sick, I'd say, "Oh, I'm a box of fluffy ducks." I'd, I'd actually lie um, if I, you know, I just make it up. And um, you keep on saying those words, and uh, eventually they prevailed, you know. Well, certainly you have, and um, I was wondering if we could close this podcast episode with your recital of the 23rd Psalm. Would that be okay? Yeah, okay. Um, off the top of my head, I haven't got it in front of me. Every night I, I walk around my circuit and uh, I go past a little creek and a little glade and that becomes um, the first part of the psalm because I'm going into this nice little glade of trees on a path uh, of about three kilometres. And So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. There's a pasture on my right, you see. He makes me lie down by still waters. He leads me on paths of righteousness. And there are these paths in front of me that's quite a rocky path. Then I, I go through a little uh, valley with, with a little hill above it and often in shadow because it's near sundown. 
Yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup is overflowing. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. So, normally if I'm walking, I'm in a rhythm and I just say that all the time. And it just flows because it's part of my muscle memory when I'm walking. So maybe I should have been walking when I was saying that. But uh, It was very beautiful all the same. I could really feel the depth um, of meaning those words have for you and how they have healed you. Yeah, and they've, they've come right down from David, uh, King David. And he got those words from uh, the words of the prophet Lemuel. Uh, Lemuel was a very ancient prophet. So that wisdom is understilled and is passed on to us by the magic of words to this age where uh, other things challenge that wisdom but uh, at the end of the day I think ancient wisdom is time proven, durable and you know if it's proven by time uh, that's what what I put my trust in is uh, ancient wisdom so uh, um, like words can bounce off some people and then sit with others and that's Kind of like those parables where, you know, seeds fall on rocky ground or sandy ground or earth where they take and all that sort of stuff. It's how you are as a person and how receptive you are to good words spoken into you. And um, you have a choice. You always have a choice by your attitude of what what happens to you or how you take things. So one thing I've noticed about myself is that I'm an almost incurable optimist. Or enthusiast, as a for instance, um, a couple of years ago, I going for my walks around that little bush circuit, and I couldn't hold my balance. I kept on falling over, no matter how hard I tried, I just fall flat on my face and knock myself around pretty badly and get cut up. And then I had to go and see uh, the neurologist and uh, get assessed and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I was given by the hospital, I was given one of these little U-boot pusher things, you know, like a four-wheel drive pusher, but one thing that I didn't do was get abjectly despondent. I never get despondent, ever. I'm always happy because that's my nature. But I, I thought, well, oh, no, you know, I can't walk. I've got this pusher. I actually found myself getting excited by the prospect of how I would use a pusher on my on my tracks. How am I going to get around? And I was trying to figure out solutions to getting a little pensioner's pusher around my bush tracks, which are quite rugged and steep. So, uh I don't know how you explain that. It's just um, a sort of a inability to feel sorry for myself because I, you know, in my life so far, I've seen a lot of very, very sad things, and that that's something that impacted me growing up since an early childhood in Kenya. You see some terrible things, so I've never ever felt sorry for myself for anything that's happened. But you know, life's not fair to everyone, and uh, uh, you know, if if you're someone who demands a lot from life or expects a lot from life, well, probably you're not going to enjoy surviving a brain tumour. But if you can find joy in the little things of life, like poached eggs with uh, bacon or um, a nice coffee, little things, then all those little bits of enjoyment are what life is all about. So um, I don't know if I'm making sense there. Um, Yeah, so I've never felt sorry for myself, but I've always felt grateful for my life. And that's another thing, um, plugging into the source. So 
I've always felt plugged into the source of all life. And so if you deny that, and a lot of people sort of uh, think that's getting a bit too, dare we say it, spiritual. So no, no, you don't say things like that in this day and age. <laughs> but um, yeah, if you if you cut yourself off from your source, it's like not answering the call when you when your dad calls. After a while, your dad's not going to call you anymore. And then you get into trouble and you want to call on your dad and you say, Dad, can I have a loan? You know, is he going to gladly give you a loan or respond? Um, so you've got to stay in, in communion with your source and um, what's made you, you. And, and, you um, and I think that's the best way I can explain uh, my take on um, the divine and the whole thing, you know, is uh, if you if you talk to him, and I call him him because we're told to call him him, he'll talk to you. But, you, you know, um, if you don't, well, it's up to you. Um, so you've got a um, this marvellous line of communication open at all times, 24-7. Uh, you want to avail yourself of it, go for it. If you don't want to avail yourself of it, that's your choice, but it's your choice, not his choice. <laughs> he just just wants you to get through stuff and he's on your side. So when you start to realise that this magnificent power that created all life is actually on your side, you know, it's uh, great. And um, if and when I come to the end of my time here, you know, uh, I can hardly wait to see what's next because uh, that's very exciting to me and that's what I think I was sensing with my mother just before she passed. She was terribly excited about the prospect because she lived a full and good life and uh, had many marvellous friends and um, life doesn't necessarily end when you end or your physical body ends it, it, uh, it's the start of something fantastic probably and that's the sense I'm getting and I have been as I say I've, I've gone very close to um, being completely gone on several occasions massive seizures and uh, even though I, you know, have said what I've said uh, about being absolutely convinced I'm going to get through stuff, there was an occasion uh, two years ago when I, I had an absolutely massive seizure. Uh, they they chucked me in a psych ward for nine days because I was hallucinating and delusional, and uh, they dragged me up, and uh, I was in a steel uh, doored cell, and. Uh, being fed rubbish food for two meals a day at least and experienced all that stuff. Um, at one stage, I'd lost all my muscle mass. So I'd lost a lot of a lot of muscle. I went down to almost a skeleton, like 56 kilograms. Yeah, I'm normally well over 60, 65. Uh, yeah, 56 kilograms. And to all intents and purposes, uh, I was faced with the prospect that maybe what these guys were saying was real. But I, like I say, um, somehow I just turned up every day, went back to my default, just, just turn up, keep on turning up every day and see what happens. Gradually my health came back. My body's cells decided on their own without me being any part of it just to keep me alive and, and I'm healthy and well again. And, um, you know, the only thing I can't do now is play the piano, but I never could before. <laughs> so um, That's amazing. Yeah.
Well, Keith, this has been a wonderful conversation. You've filled my heart. You've expanded my consciousness. You've made me more determined to be more focused and careful with my words. And I really encourage listeners to look up your book. Um, It'll be – I'll put direct links to Amazon for it in the uh, show notes page, but just uh, if you're listening and you're driving, it's called Staring Down the Beast – how I Enjoyed Myself Well from a Brain Tumor Death Sentence by Keith Livingston. And um, we've, we've been really blessed to share this time um, and do this recording for the benefit of many more people. Uh, thank you very much, Keith. Thank you, Helen. And um, I'll preface what you just said about the title of the book. If I wrote it again now, I'd call it something different because it's no longer a beast to me. It's a little uh, barking puppy, (laughs) a very noisy barking puppy. So what I've decided is to have a truce. So the cells are still in there, and I'm told they could take off at any time, but I don't believe that because I choose not to believe it. So I regard this as just a little barking puppy. I've minimised the threat mentally by describing it that way. I've sort of um, made it like a beast because people say it's a beast but it's actually uh, just a little yapping puppy that's how I've sort of described it to people and uh, I regard it as such just another thing that happens to someone in our life yeah well All then right. let's um, encourage everyone to search for your for your name as the author Keith Livingston and you'll yep. find Keith's other book the healthy intelligent training the Proven Principles of Arthur Lydiard, uh, and that's the book you talked about much earlier um, in our conversation. Yeah, and that's uh, getting rewritten as well. Oh, fabulous. Um, the principles of Arthur Lydiard's training um, for endurance, the principles have never changed because principles don't change, just the principles. So even though our understanding of the physiology has advanced somewhat, um, the way he trained people 60, 70 years ago is still absolutely current in terms of what we know now of physiology. So this guy was a, a pioneer in the world of uh, endurance training and uh, very famous in that world. I was lucky to grow up w- when we emigrated from Kenya to New Zealand with my mum. We settled in a suburb about 500 metres away from where he lived. He was a remarkable man and I, I, I chose, as I said earlier, to um, have a major project to use my uh, illness time or recovery time to do the best I could with writing a book all about his what he, he discovered off his own bat in, in physiology. Because I, I had a background in physiology through my chiropractic studies, I thought, well, who's, who's going to write the book about Arthur Liddy and the physiology? I thought about it, and after a while I came to the conclusion that the person who was supposed to write it was the person who thought about it, and that was me. So I wrote it. Well, um, I'd just like to add that you were no slouch because your first seizure was in July 2007, and according to Amazon, the the running book was published in October 2010. Yeah, I got it out of the way pretty quickly, yeah. Mm. Um, I think I had a sort of a premonition that all was not well, and I better get moving with this before, long before the seizure. First seizure announced itself, but I, I, I just had um, sort of feelings that uh, I I might not be around for as long as I thought for a while there, and so I thought, well, I better get a move on and, and do what I'm supposed to do. And for some reason, um, yeah, you know, we all would like to maybe if we were a writer write war and peace, but what I was or seemed to know more about 
than most people having grown up down the road from this guy was um, the Lydiard system of training and uh, that was the culture I grew up with around me in New Zealand, Sports Mad New Zealand. Um, that's what I understood probably more than most. That's what I wrote about. And so that became a uh, all-consuming quest to write the, the best possible accounts of that training that I could for the layman and everyday person who wants to get fit. And um, I think uh, if nothing else is a testament to my life, uh, I think leaving a, a book about that wonderful work that Arthur Lydia did, uh, that's worth doing. So that became a sort of an all-consuming quest and it's quite popular or very popular in the, that world. But um, there are other things I want to explore and write about in the future and I think they will then become something to be enthusiastic about, something to live for and something to you know, keep on living for. Well, Keith, thank you. And I look forward to future conversations about the new things that, that you um, begin doing sometime down the track. I'm sure we'll get to talk again. Oh, yep, yep. There's just so much that we haven't covered, the depth in your story and all the the aspects of your family and all the things you went through. I really do encourage people to read your book. Um, Tear off the front cover and the title if you like, and um, but delve right into the content Keith has put together, um, a beautiful and thought-provoking and truthful... um, guide to, to surviving and to living and to thriving. I think that I think that's sort of how I feel about your book. Yeah, and what I will say is that I, I went to some degree of heavy research with the nutrition and those plans. I've laid it all out for people if they want to, if they're in a similar position or know someone who's in a similar position, I've laid out what's worked for me. And I think after 13 years, but still being in, really quite good shape I've earned the right to say I've survived it and survived it well And but what I'm saying is it's entirely possible and uh, don't believe any naysayer or particularly specialist who, who wants to say to you that you can't because I have and um, you know uh, you can have a lovely life and enjoy your life uh, even though you've got a brain tumour and why can't you enjoy your life with a brain tumour you know go for it do what you love doing and uh, hang out with people you love and enjoy life and uh, then you'll keep on being alive. Thank you, Keith. Thank you very much. Okay. See you, Helen. Thank you. So that's it for this episode of the More Love podcast. We've been extremely blessed. I know it's a longer episode, but I think you'll agree with me that every moment was worth it. And um, if you want to access the show notes and um, links to all the resources, including Keith's two books, uh, please visit my website, www.livetruetoyou.com. And you'll also find snippets and words of wisdom on my socials, um, Instagram and, and Facebook are both at Live True To You With Heart. Uh, we'll look forward to sharing another episode together um, at another time. Thank you very much. Bye for now.